We have seen in the past few weeks that Pharaoh is what we would call a tough nut to crack. He is obstinate. He is hardened. He is recalcitrant against the Lord. But he's no match for God. God can crack any tough nut. I've watched him do it. I've seen people that I thought, oh, they're, they're impossible. They'll never come to Christ. And I see people praying for him, and go, oh, you know, go ahead, yeah, but only to see that person come to Christ. It is so awesome to watch God work. Nothing is impossible to him. Pharaoh has learned the fine art of negotiation. He's learned that you should try not to give people what they want, but compromise, counteroffer. Sort of like when you buy a house or you buy a car, you make an offer, there's a counteroffer. It's all a game. But God is serious, and God is going to get His way in the end. Let my people go is the message. It's still the message. It's not going to change. But Pharaoh's going to try to weasel his way out of it, and Moses is tempted to compromise, as we all are tempted to compromise in our Christian walk. As I see kids growing up today, I tell you, I pray. There's something inside of me that gets a little fearful. I mean, it's tough in any day and age. It's tough in our age when we grew up. Some of us are still growing up. And it's tough. But the world seems to get more brazen and more obvious in its attack against the Christian. And the voices of the world and the peer pressure, it's so tough. Going to the movies the other night, looking at young teenagers just hanging out and just seeing, the, seeing what's in their eyes, hearing some of the conversations, scary stuff. There's a story of a hunter who went into the woods to kill a bear. And he wanted to get a nice fur coat. And he saw a bear and he had him in his sights and he was ready to pull the trigger. Just then the bear turned around and said, Hey, wait a minute, what's the hurry? I think we can negotiate. We can talk about this. What is it you want? Hunter said, All I want is a fur coat. And yours looks pretty good, so I'm about to blow your head off and get it. The bear said, well, you know, I think we can negotiate. All I want is a meal. Let's sit down and talk about it. The hunter was dumb enough to put his rifle down and go into the woods, follow the bear, and they had a long conversation. Half an hour later, the bear came out alone, licking his chops. Negotiations were successful. The bear had his meal. The hunter had his fur coat. But it wasn't the way he originally wanted that fur coat. Now, God wants the children of Israel to go out of Egypt lock, stock, and barrel. Take everything, kids, animals, and spoil the Egyptians. Pharaoh is not so willing to let them go. But God has ten convincing methods called plagues. And they really are persuasive. You know, it's kind of like every time Pharaoh says, No, it's like God through Moses is saying, We have these of making you cooperate. And the light is shined upon Pharaoh with these plagues. Now the first three plagues simply interfered with the comfort of the Egyptians. It touched their water supply in the Nile River for crops and for drinking water. 
Frogs covered the land. Lice covered the land. It was very uncomfortable. The second three plagues touched the possessions of Egypt, what they owned, and in terms of locusts destroying the land and so forth. The last three plagues bring death. They get worse each time they're given. Each time there's a hardened heart with Pharaoh, God kind of ups the ante a little bit. And it brings death in the last three. Now God warns Pharaoh about the possibility, if he hardens his heart, if you touch Israel, my firstborn, I'm going to touch your firstborn. Let me read a scripture back in Exodus chapter 4. Moses said, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my son, even my firstborn. And I say unto you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, then I will slay your son, even your firstborn. Pharaoh didn't believe it. He will believe it. And finally he will say, Get out of here. I want to see your face no more. Leave. But it had to involve his son. Now there's a lot of people who reject Jesus Christ, reject his message, reject his promises that he's going to come again and judge the earth. Jesus said, except you repent, you will all what? Likewise perish. There are some people who still won't believe that. No, I won't perish. There's a lot of ways to God. I can beat the system. Well, you won't beat the system. Come judgment day, you may be very sorry. You can't fight against God and win. Pharaoh learned that. Unfortunately, many will in the future. Another thing to realize, and we underline it as we go through this section of the Old Testament, God is not a God of wrath as much as He's a God of mercy. He tempers mercy with His wrath. He's patient with Pharaoh. He's given him many, many chances. And one of the unfortunate results or asides of God's patience and long-suffering is that it can be dangerously misunderstood by people. They get away with lots of sin and they think God isn't doing anything about it. A, He's weak and He cannot. B, He doesn't care. Or C, God approves of my activities. And people are self-deluded. Sin is deceitful. So they continue in it. Now in verse 14 of chapter 10, we read, And the locusts bzz, went up over all the land of Egypt and rested on the territory of Egypt. They were very severe. Previously there had been no such locusts as they, nor shall there be such after them. For they covered the face of the whole earth so that the land was darkened, and they ate every herb of the land and all the fruit of the trees which the hail had left. So there remained nothing green on the trees or on the plants of the field throughout all the land of Egypt. Locusts in the Bible, not only here but elsewhere, are a picture of judgment. In the book of Joel we read that God judges His own people, the nation of Israel, by sending a swarm of locusts through the land to destroy the land. A severe pestilence in terms of worms and locusts Cover the land later on. We'll read about it in the Minor Prophets. Notice, uh, I want you to notice that these locusts did not appear miraculously. I didn't say they didn't appear supernaturally. I said they didn't appear miraculously. And I'm going to make an important point. An east wind brought them in. You say, oh, but wait a minute. God brought the east wind. That's a miracle. 
No, it's not. That is the providence of God. There is a difference, and I think it is noteworthy to understand, there's a difference between that which is miraculous and that which is providential. Miraculous is the intervention of God into the affairs of man by an extraordinary, uncommon event. People say, oh, a miracle is the sun coming up every day. No, it's not. It's just the way God created the universe. Now, it would be a miracle for you to do it. Oh, it's a miracle every time a baby is being born. Well, yes, that's awesome and it's supernatural, but providence is where God takes the natural events of man and He overrules them. He weaves the events together as to form His purpose. For instance, there's a great story in the Old Testament, Book of Esther. It's a book that beautifully illustrates God's providence. There is not one miracle recorded in the book. But God's hand of providence is all over the book, overruling the affairs of men, overruling uh, Haman's wicked plot to kill all the Jews. So while the miraculous is the extraordinary intervention of God in human affairs, for instance, it is a miracle for water to be turned to wine. It is a miracle for a man to stand on water since water cannot naturally, uh, uh, the weight of man can't naturally displace that enough to make that man float. He's going to sink unless he has some apparatus to displace the water. The ratio isn't correct. He's going to sink. So for a man to stand on a body of water and go, howdy, and start walking across it, that's miraculous. But there are things that happen, for instance, this east wind coming in, supernatural, yeah, it was done by God. It was the hand of God, but it was done by God's providence. Some of these were miraculous, some of them were providential, all of them were supernatural. The hand of God brought them in. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste or in a hurry. He said, I have sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Well, what do you know? You think, oh, he's waking up. Well, let's see. Now, therefore, please forgive my sin only this once and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. Now, he's making an important step. He's admitting that he's a sinner. It's always the most important step. It's always the first step. You have to be poor in spirit. Acknowledge that your spirit is bankrupt before God. The reason many people don't come to Christ is they think they're good enough. They don't admit that they're a sinner. Or they, like Pharaoh, will admit that they're a sinner, but they won't do anything about their sin. Oh, I'm a sinner? Of course, everybody's a sinner. I'm not perfect. Are you perfect? I'm not perfect. Yes, I'm a sinner, but to admit it isn't enough. You have to turn from it. The word is repentance. And there are people who can be sorry for what they've done, not because they've offended God, thus turning from it, they're sorry they got caught and it hurts their own lives. Oh, I'm so sorry. It's caused me such grief. Probably every criminal in every major institution is sorry, but not necessarily for what he has done, but that he got caught and that he's there. Now, I'm not, that's not a blanket statement. Some are truly sorry for what they've done against society or against the people, but not all of them. 
But probably every one of them is sorry that they're there, that they got caught, because it's certainly an inconvenience, well, to some of them. Some of them, they have it better off in prison. They have HBO and nice beds, and some of them didn't have that before, the way we treat them. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10 tells us, For godly sorrow produces repentance to salvation. Godly sorrow. It's not to be regretted, but the sorrow of the world produces death. Now, an important facet in coming to Christ is you recognize you're a sinner, you admit it, and then you go, okay, there it is. Now I'm going to turn from it and follow Him. I'm not going to follow that way anymore. I'm going to follow Him from now on. I'm going to make a clean break. I'm going to make a decision, and I will follow as His disciple, Jesus Christ. That is called repentance. Let me give you an illustration that I've used concerning my wife, lovely wife sitting here. Let me embarrass her for just a moment. She came to Christ basically through her father. Her father was an author, a physician in Southern California, brilliant man with a law background and a medical background, wanted to read the New Testament to see, as he read the red letters, if Jesus was one who believed in PMA, positive mental attitude. Was Jesus a positive person? As he read the New Testament, he thought, "Uh uh-oh, Jesus is a lot more than I thought. His claims far outstrip anything I imagined His character, who he claims to be, I didn't imagine them. He saw the necessity to give his life to Christ. He did. He got baptized in the Pacific Ocean. He called his family, including Lenny, and said, You need Jesus Christ. Lenny thought he flipped his lid. But she thought, He's an intelligent man. He doesn't do things rashly. He thinks things through very, very meticulously. She started investigating it. She had a booklet that was given to her for spiritual laws. And there's a picture inside of it that shows a... uh, throne of a person's heart and you can either put yourself on the throne and life is all out of whack or you can put Jesus on the throne and life is just falls into place. So she thought, oh, that's what I'll do. I'll put Jesus on the throne and I'll have everything I ever wanted in life. He is a means to my ends. I want to be happy. I want to be all the things that life ought to be. If I just accept Jesus, then I'll have whatever I want. He was simply a means to an end. She prayed a little prayer at the back. But as the weeks went on and as she went to church, she noticed that something was not right. She'd go to church, she'd, she would observe. She'd see people worshiping. She'd know they had a real relationship with God. She said, something is missing. And she'd go to church and she'd weep during the message. And her dad would nudge her, what's wrong? And uh, as they, at the end of the service, said, if you'd like to come forward and be prayed for, she thought, you know, i got to go forward. Dad said, you don't need to go forward. You're fine the way you are. You, you prayed the prayer. No, something's not right. So she went to the back room and spoke to this guy from England named Malcolm Wilde, a terrific guy, a pastor in a church in Florida now. And Malcolm is from England, and he'd been reading Finney's works lately about revival and repentance. And she told Malcolm her story about how she had come to Christ, and she read the little booklet and put Jesus on the throne and expected things to happen. And Malcolm looked at her and said, But have you repented of your sin? I think he actually said it just like that. And she said, "Uh, I don't know what that means. What does repentance mean? And he explained that repentance means you acknowledge that you're a sinner and you turn from it. You turn from sin, you turn to Christ, you lay aside the old, and you decide to follow Him, and that is you put aside the old, and you follow Him. That's belief. It entails that. She says, I've never done it. He said, it's time that you do it today, and she did. 
And it wasn't just, boy, I'm sorry for the past, but it was godly sorrow, as 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, that brings repentance. Now, I know the word conjures up medieval monks running around in robes with sackcloth on them. Or we think that, well, repentance, that's for real bad people. There are people, and I grant it, they're really wicked people, a lot worse than I am, certainly, who really need repentance. But repentance is a keynote of the New Testament. John's first message, John the Baptist, is repent. Jesus' first message was repent. If that is the case, why is repentance so seldom preached in churches? It is. It has become a faux pas, to say the word. Churches today, the trend is this. Let's entertain the goats rather than feed the sheep. Let's make all the goats feel comfortable in our midst by not mentioning Jesus too much or talk about the blood or repentance. After all, we want to bring him back. Make him feel comfortable. Make him feel good. No, you don't. You want every person apart from Christ to come to grips with the fact that there is a holy God separated from man by sin. And thus that person sees that he has a need to bridge that gap, that distance. And the only way to bridge that gap is through the solution of Jesus Christ. Church isn't to make people feel good, pat on the back. It's to get them in touch with the living God. One of the reasons repentance is not preached today is simply, well, because it is unpopular, but the appeal in much modern evangelism isn't for repentance, it's for enlistment. People are seen as trophies. Well, how many came forward? Well, who cares? Numbers are incidental. They're not little niches on the Bible or trophies. These are the souls of men. And the appeal, though, is often for enlistment. Secondly, people do not like to accept the reality of personal sin. Somehow we like to think that God is like our favorite college professor the one who graded on a large curve. Oh, there's a few wicked people, but I'm not as bad as they are. They need repentance, but I'm all right. You know, gall and all, it'll come out in the wash. Thirdly, repentance is seldom preached because it is threatening, it is uncomfortable. And how are you going to reach a good middle-class church congregation with words like repentance? It's uncomfortable. They might not come back again. Well, that's right. But I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul said it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. And don't you be ashamed of the gospel either. It's powerful. And you don't really have to defend it as much as you have to just let it loose. Watch what God will do through it. People see the conviction of the gospel in your own life. They see you burn with conviction and truth in your life, and it's going to make a difference. It's important to use the right biblical terms and present the gospel as it is. It's important that a person comes to grips with sin and repentance. Why? Because as soon as you come and you mourn for your sins, you'll be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, they shall be comforted. Quickest way to get comfort washing over your soul is for you to say, I am a sinner and I'm going to change my life. And I can't do it alone. I'm going to come to Jesus Christ. That's something Pharaoh did not do.
David said, Blessed is the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute sin. You want to be blessed, or the word means happy, comforted. You come to him in repentance. And that goes for all of us, Christian or non-Christian. There are times where God shines the Holy Spirit flashlight on my heart. And goes, busted. Look at that bad attitude. And the message is the same. You recognize it, you repent of it. There's a lot of work that God still has to do in my life. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord. And the Lord turned a very strong wind, west wind. Poor people who lived in the west. Which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. All right, just some of those fishermen. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. And the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may be felt. Now that is unusual. The darkness was so intense that a person could feel it, it would seem. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. There was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt for three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days, but all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Now, there have been various explanations for this darkness. Some scholars, some who write commentaries uh, and try to bring the miraculous into explanations that we can understand, some of them are, are fascinating, some of them are just funny. They have tried to relegate this to a sandstorm. And there is something known in Egypt and in Israel, I've been there, called the Humsing. It's a strong wind that blows off the desert. It can bring lots of w dust with it. You know, today it was pretty windy and dusty. I was out changing a flat tire and I was getting dust in my eyes and leaves in my ears and it was snowing. I'm thinking, this is ridiculous. But I've been in Egypt before when the wind was blowing so hard. I mean, it's just thick. But it seems that this is a supernatural darkness, not just a windstorm, because we see that there was light in the homes of the children of Israel. Actually, this is judgment on the sun god Ra. And if you get one of those little uh, leaflets that we pass out tonight, you have the plagues. And Ra was the god of the sun. He was dependent upon for warmth and for light. And he was the symbol of the disk that you often find in Egyptian hieroglyphics. Now, in the New Testament... There's also a plague that is given and a darkness that is given. And it's also seen as judgment. Even as God judged the children or the uh, Egyptians in the Old Testament, when Jesus hung on the cross from 12 noon to 3 p.m., there was a darkness that covered the earth, the Bible says. According to the Babylonian Talmud, the Jewish rabbis said that when darkness would cover the land, it would indicate that God is judging the world for a most severe and wicked crime. What could be more wicked than taking the son of life and putting him to death? A supernatural darkness that covered the land, much like that during the time of Egypt. Now the Bible also speaks of a future day. The great day of the Lord. And how does the Bible speak of it? Well, in the book of Joel and Amos it says, it's a day of darkness and gloom, a day of thick clouds and blackness. Now that's something, and I thought we should bring it up as we go through it, but uh, if you turn with me to Revelation chapter 9, 
there is a plague that happens at the fifth trumpet that seems to combine the plagues of the locusts and the plagues of darkness together as God judges the earth. It says, Then the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to the earth. To him was given a key to the bottomless pit, and he opened the bottomless pit, and smoke arose out of the pit like the smoke of a great furnace. So the sun and the air were darkened because of the smoke of the pit. And then out of the smoke locusts came upon the earth, and to them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Now, as you're going to see, these are very unusual locusts. These are not your run-of-the-mill grasshoppers that you tell your children to go get to feed the snake that's uh, in the aquarium. They were commanded not to harm the grass of the earth or any green thing or any tree, but only those men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. And they were not given authority to kill them, but to torment them for five months. Their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it strikes a man. In those days, men will seek death and will not find it. They will desire to die, and death will flee from them. The shape of the locusts was like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were crowns of something like gold, and their faces were like the faces of men. They had hair like women's hair. And their teeth were like lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron. And the sound of their wings was like the sound of chariots with many horses running into battle. They had tails like scorpions, and their stings were in their tails. There was power. Uh, their power was to hurt men for five months. They had a king over them, the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek it is Apollyon. Woe, the, one woe is past. Behold, two more woes are coming after these things. So as locusts and darkness uh, were part of the plague in Egypt, locusts were part of the plague given to Israel in the book of Joel. It was predicted that darkness would cover the earth in the tribulation. We see on the cross there was darkness, and in the great tribulation there will be both locusts and darkness. Now verse 24, Moses calls to Pharaoh, and he says, Go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. Now, before he said, keep your kids. Now he says, take your kids, leave your flocks. This is a compromise. He's still being persistent. And you think, okay, Moses, look, this guy has given a little bit. I think it's time for you to mellow out and relax and, and take the counter offer, leave the sheep, take the kids, the wives, and split. But listen, this is simply... Uh, It's a cover-up. Pharaoh could care less about the flocks. It says every shepherd and their flocks are an abomination unto the Egyptian. It's just a way to keep the Israelites to come back to the land of Egypt. Okay, you can go, but keep all of your possessions in Egypt. Now, I want to press this as an application before we go on. As we've gone through these plagues and these compromises, we've seen that the world comes and offers us the same compromise. And so the world, or the devil, often comes to the Christians and says, Okay, go. You want to be a Christian? Go for it. Go ahead. Do it. Get a Bible. Drag your kids into it. Go overboard if you want. But leave your treasures in Egypt. Leave your treasures in Egypt. After all, you've got to look out for yourself. And you need to make economic decisions. And uh, why give to God's work? One of the things I'm really glad for, I'm really glad for the way this fellowship has been set up. 
is that we don't pressure people for finances. And because of that, we can never have a finger pointed at us for being heavy-handed with the money. Oh, they're ripping us off. I mean, we seldom even mention it. Chip just says that there's boxes around the auditorium. If you'd like to give, you give them to the Lord. And we're going to keep it that way. We don't like to pressure people for money. But what a person does with their finances does indicate their level of commitment to the Lord. That is true. Because giving unto the Lord's work is spoken about in the Bible. Very, very plainly. Very many times. And when, we, when it comes out, we'll talk about it. And there are some people that want to keep all of their treasures, all of their riches, all of their sheep, all of their belongings still in the world, still in Egypt. And people will make uh, their decisions based on economic things rather than spiritual things. You know, I had a woman come up to me just the opposite. This is years ago. And she said, how come you never take an offering here? She said, I'm kind of offended. I said, you're kind of offended? That's the first time I've heard that. She said, I'm offended because I see giving my money as an act of worship unto my Lord. And I said, well, you know what? We'll mention it from now on every week. Because we don't want to offend God's people. And certainly, it is an act of worship. She said, I consider it a privilege to give to God's work. Now, she was a saint who delighted and saw that everything was given to her by God. And she wanted to honor God with the first fruits of her flocks and of her increase. And she did. Okay, Moses, go take your kids, but leave those flocks. Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock shall also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But Pharaoh hardened his heart. He would not let them go. And Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day when you see my face, you shall die. Would you say he's a repentant man? No way. There's a lot of people that say, oh, I'm a Christian. But you never see it in their lifestyle. There's never a change. They talk just like this. They act just as obstinate against God and God's people. Hardened in their hearts. There's never been an ounce of repentance in their life. Where they've come and had God change them from the inside out. And they sound often like Pharaoh. Get out of my face. You know, there's people who, when you call them into account on biblical matters, who are you to tell me, get out of my face? We have people who come in the office. They fill out the forms. Yes, I'm a Christian. We'll sit them down. We'll talk to them. How long have you been a Christian? Oh, I've been a Christian all my life. They go, oh, here's a mature believer. Well, what's the problem? Well, my girlfriend and I, we've been living together now for 10 months, and she disagrees with this, and we have this problem with this drug dealer. I mean, you know, you'd be surprised maybe at what people do and still claim to be believers, living in fornication, doing all sorts of stuff and saying, I'm a Christian. We tell them, look, don't tell anybody you're a Christian, first of all. Don't tell anybody that because you're going to give everybody a bad witness. Secondly, I don't think you really are, and I think you need to change today and make a decision for Jesus Christ. Listen, this is what a true Christian is, and this is what a true Christian is not. And you have the choice to get your life right with God today. We see people every week who make that decision once they find out, oh, that's what a believer is. Oh, but not Pharaoh. He hadn't changed. He just said, get out of my face. And Moses said, you have spoken well. I will never see your face again. 
Now we come to chapter 11. This is the final chapter in the contest with Moses. There's one final act of judgment left. As you see, God has been slow to anger. He's been a God of much long-suffering. And that will soon end. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring yet one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. Afterward, he will let you go from here. When he lets you go, he will surely drive you Excuse me, surely drive you out of here altogether. Speak now in the hearing of the people, and let every man ask. I like this part. Let every man ask from his neighbor, and every woman from her neighbor, articles of silver and articles of gold. Isn't that a strange request? And you're going to leave. I'm going to deliver you from there. The hands of bondage. You've been slaves. But before you go, would you go in there and ask them for their jewelry, their watches, and... I mean, it was kind of like sanctified panhandling almost. What I see this as, as simply collecting back wages. They have worked for free. They have been slaves in their hands for years. They've built their treasure cities, their walled fortresses. They've been beaten for it. They haven't gotten any money. So it's kind of like, cough it up now. You owe it to us. Now, the Egyptians are glad to see them go. Anything. What do you want? It's all yours. Here, here's the keys to the, uh, the camel. Go for it. Just get out of here. <laughs> the Lord gave the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians. Moreover, the man Moses was very great in the land of Egypt, in the sight of Pharaoh's servants and in the sight of the people. And Moses said, Thus says the Lord, About midnight I will go into the midst of Egypt, and all the firstborn in the land of Egypt shall die, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne, even to the firstborn of the maidservant who is behind the handmill, and all the firstborn of the beasts. There shall be a great cry throughout all the land of Egypt, such as was not like it before, nor shall be like it again. This is the ultimate disaster. If you're a parent, can you imagine the havoc that was wrought upon Egypt as they woke up in the morning to find their firstborn child dead. Keep in mind the firstborn was, especially the firstborn son, was the one that fulfilled and epitomized all the dreams that a father had for his child. Received a double portion of the inheritance, took on the family name, became sort of the priest of the family and brought leadership to the clan. And God is going to make a difference in judgment but this time, the difference will not be, okay, Jew versus Egyptian, or uh, people who live in Goshen or the land of Egypt. <clears throat> the difference now will be whoever puts blood on their house. You see, God is not interested in one race over another race. In fact, it seems that some of the Egyptians who had married some of the Jews were also saved because within their households, the blood was applied. So it's not that God is saying, okay, if you're in that camp, I love you. If you're in that camp, I hate you. If you're Jewish, I love you. If you're non-Jewish, well, you're out of here. No, the distinction was the person who applied the blood of the slain lamb to his life was the one who was sane, saved and sane. <laughs> but against none of the children of Israel shall a dog move its tongue against man or beast that you may know that the Lord 
does make a difference between the Egyptians and Israel. And all these your servants shall come down to me and bow down to me, saying, Get out, and all the people who follow you. After that, I will go out. And then he went out from Pharaoh in great anger. But the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh isn't going to listen to you. He will not heed you, so that my wonders may be multiplied in the land of Egypt. So Moses and Aaron did all these wonders before Pharaoh. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart as he did not let the children of Israel go out of the land. If that phrase, the Lord hardened his heart, bothers you, you might want to refer back to the previous tapes where we discussed that whole idea. Chapter 12. Now the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, saying, This month shall be your beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year to you. This is the high point of the book. Now, if you have an outline that we gave to you at the beginning and you still kept it, if you have it, you can refer to it now and see that there's a change that is occurring in our outline. A new division is on the horizon. Chapters 1 through 11 deal primarily with Moses. Chapters 12 through 14 deal with the deliverance. We saw in the first 11 chapters subjection. Now we see emancipation. We saw Moses raised up. We saw Moses sent. We saw Moses vindicated before Pharaoh. And now we see the Passover being instituted, the children of Israel crossing over the Red Sea and going out into the wilderness. Passover, it'd be great if this was the time for Passover. Unfortunately, it's the, actually it's fortunately, but it's the time for the Festival of Lights, Hanukkah, which will be celebrated here Saturday night. And it has great significance as well. Jesus celebrated it. We know that. But Passover is the clearest type of the work of Jesus Christ upon the cross that there is in the Scripture, I think. It's very clear and it's very striking of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Unless you understand this institution of Passover, you'll have difficulty understanding parts of the New Testament and the work that Jesus did on the cross. Frequently, Jesus is referred to in the New Testament as a lamb. And there is a theme of the Lamb all the way through the Bible. In fact, all the way back from Abraham on Mount Moriah, where the temple eventually stood and eventually where Jesus was crucified. Abraham said, The Lord will provide Himself the Lamb for the offering. Prophetic, actually, of Jesus Christ. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, John the Baptist, seeing Him come down to the Jordan River, said, Behold the Lamb of God, which takes away the sins of the world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 said, Even Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. And one of the classic scriptures that you might want to commit to memory is 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 18. We were not redeemed with corruptible things, like silver and gold, or from a vain background given to us by our forefathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or without blemish. He's the Lamb of God. And he's typified here in the Passover lamb. Also in the book of Revelation, John, when he writes, says he saw a lamb as though it had been slain. And I think some 28 times Jesus is spoken about as a lamb in the book of Revelation. So Israel's life was changed by a lamb. Their relationship with God, life and death, hung in the balances with a lamb. Same with you. Your life was changed by a lamb, the Lamb of God, the Lamb that Mary had in Bethlehem that grew up and became the Savior of the world.
Now, at Passover, if you've never been to one, you've got to go to one. It's fun. It's also very uh, uh, instructive, educational. Um, the Jewish Passover is celebrated different from all the other meals. It's a leisurely meal. The best tablecloth is put out. A special plate uh, called the Seder plate uh, is put out. And there's special foods that garnish the table during Passover. And uh, they all indicate the stuff we're reading here tonight and last week and next week about the Passover. First of all, there's a hard-boiled egg that symbolizes, people say it symbolizes different things, but basically it's the hope of new life as the children of Israel were in Egypt going out to the wilderness into their new land. Secondly, there was a roasted lamb bone which spoke of the lamb that was slain and the blood put on the lintels and doorposts. Thirdly, on the Seder plate, there's salt water which speaks of the tears that were shed while they were in bondage to the Egyptians and the crossing of the Red Sea. Then there was bitter herbs, which speaks of the bitter suffering uh, that they endured at the hands of the Egyptians. Then also there is something called haroset, which was um, made with raisins, still is, raisins, cinnamon, nuts, and uh, it's put together and it's a very gummy clay-like substance. What do you think that represents? The bricks that the children of Israel were forced to make under the hands of the Egyptians while they were in bondage. That's also on the plate. Then there's the matzah bread, which is unleavened bread. It's the kind of bread you can make quickly. It's made in haste to symbolize the fact that they ate this meal quickly so that they could get out of Egypt when God called them. So verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt and said, This month shall be, and this is important, your beginning of months. It's the first month of the year to you. Why is this significant? Because in the ancient calendars of the ancient Near East, Mideast peoples, the calendars revolved around the production of crops. Israel's calendar was to revolve around her redemption by blood. It's the first of the year to you. It's the new year. Even as our life revolves around the redemption of blood. I've had 40 and 50 year old men and women come up to me and say, I'm two years old. And of course, they mean their spiritual birthday. Two years ago, they gave their life to Jesus Christ. Their life now revolves around the work that Jesus has done. If any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. All things become new. It's a great way to look at life. I don't know how old you are, but I'm about 20 years old. I like to think of it that way. 20 years old in the Lord. Speak to the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth day of this month, Every man shall take for himself a lamb, according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Now, um, a word about the Jewish calendar. The Jewish calendar is based upon the lunar month, which is 29 and a half days, roughly. 29 and a half days. And every month, of 29 and a half days roughly, you have a small festival called Rosh Kodesh, the head of the month. It's the time the new moon comes out. If you put all of the months together in a Jewish calendar, you come up to about 354 and a third days, if I'm not mistaken. 354 and a third days, which means it doesn't correspond to the, lunar, uh, to the solar calendar, uh, the earth going around the sun. 
But they celebrated their main festivals like Passover and Pentecost, which is celebrated in the summer, and Tabernacles in the fall, according to the solar calendar. So they had a problem. They got lunar months and they got solar months. The only way to reconcile them, and they did a terrific job, is to add a month every now and then called Adar, A-D-A-R. And when they would add that month, it would become a leap year. Instead of adding a couple days like we do, they'd add a month. There'd be an odd year where you'd have the month of Adar in there. Sometimes it wouldn't be there, sometimes it would be there. So keep that in mind because that will come up a couple times in the scriptures when you see the leap year. So speak to the congregation on the tenth month. The tenth of this month, every man shall take for himself a lamb. (coughs) According to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for the lamb, let him and his neighbor next to his house take it according to the number of persons, according to each man's need. You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you have to take it according to the need, not according to the greed. You measured the people in the household and you took the lamb and the portions according to that number. You'd calculate it out, see how much you eat. I don't know about you, but I've often said I was born in the wrong part of the world. I love Mideastern food. I love lamb. I know it has that wild taste. I love it. Uh, One time I was in a Bedouin tent and I was spending the day and they asked me to spend the night actually. They were out in the middle of the wilderness in Judea and they were making me Turkish coffee and and the guy gets out his big old knife and I'm thinking, oh, what did I say? And he said, you're our friend. Would you like to stay for dinner? I said, well, uh, what do you have? He says, well, I'm about to slaughter a lamb for you. And I thought, oh, you know, that does sound delicious. But uh, I had a plane to catch that evening, and oh, I'd have loved to have stayed to have fresh roasted lamb. You know, it kind of given me the flavor of the children of Israel out there in the wilderness. Notice verse 3. It's called a lamb. Verse 4, the lamb. Verse 5, your lamb. Now, there seems to be a flow of progress that has a spiritual lesson for us. Before we came to Christ, when we were non-believers, Jesus didn't mean anything to us. He was, yeah, okay, he's, who he's, yeah, he's a lamb. His claims of Christ had nothing to us personally. He had no claim on our lives. Some of us said, oh, he's a great moral teacher. He said a lot of neat things. Big deal. There was a time, however, when the Holy Spirit came and was faithful to convict you of your sin. You saw you yourself as hopeless apart from Jesus Christ. You saw that you were a sinner and Jesus came to pay the price of your sins and you looked at him as the lamb. There is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And then when you gave your life to Jesus Christ, he became your lamb. You had a personal relationship with him, sort of like the children of Israel here. And now it's always important that you make it personal that you apply the blood of the Lamb to your personal life. Paul said, I am crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Nevertheless, I live. Yet it's not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He didn't just die for the sins of the world. He died for you personally. And it's time that you recognize that and he becomes your personal Lamb slain for you. Sadly, many people recognize, oh, he's the lamb. 
That's as far as they go. Now notice he has to be without blemish. A male of the first year, you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Between the time the lamb is born and the time he reaches year number one, it's the age of innocence in that lamb's life, according to the Jewish way of thinking. And it was also a time that uh, there would be fewer spots or blemishes possible upon the lamb. It was sort of at the prime of his life, a young, innocent lamb. Corresponds to Jesus Christ, doesn't it? He died at a young age, 33. Pretty young. He was a male. He was without spot and he was without blemish, according to the Scripture. Now you shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. And the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. They shall take some of the blood, put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the houses where they eat it. That they shall eat the flesh on that night, roasted in fire with unleavened bread, with bitter herbs, they shall eat it. Now, as we said, bitter herbs were symbolizing the bitterness they had in Egypt. Leavened bread was cooked when you had a lot of time. Unleavened bread is when you didn't have any time. And it's a thin little matzah cracker. Um, you can buy it in the store today. You'll see it, <coughs> in fact, it'll even say approved by the chief rabbi. And uh, it's kosher matzah bread. It's flat, unleavened uh, cakes of bread. Very popular in Israel almost at any meal. Uh, it's just a kind of a favorite meal still in Israel. Leaven is a symbol also. Because leaven or yeast, which is what it is, permeates through the bread. It's that sour, pungent stuff that permeates and causes the bread to rise, taking on a different form. It becomes in the scripture a symbol of evil, a symbol of sin. It is seen as something that is spiritually destructive in the life of a Christian. And the New Testament uses it that way. Jesus said, beware of the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Now, you know what he was speaking about? He was speaking to a church that let an immoral person, a person living in sexual immorality, come into the church. They didn't care anything about it. They didn't call him into account and enact church discipline. And it was leavening the whole lot. People thought, well, hey, listen, if those are the standards around here and leadership knows about it and they don't do anything about it, I guess we can all do it. And Paul warned that this kind of an effect can ruin a church. So he says, a little leaven leavens a whole lump. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough, as one translation says. Get rid of the old leaven, that there may be a new batch without it. Let us keep the feast, not with the leaven of wickedness and malice, but in sincerity and truth. So leaven is anything in your life that hinders your relationship with God. Something in the way. There's some thing, some person, some pursuit that hinders your fellowship with God. You say, oh, but I don't know what to do with it. Try this. How about get rid of it? You say, well, I can't. I'm married to it. Well, <coughs> I'm not suggesting you get rid of that person. But an unbelieving spouse does not have to hinder your personal walk with the Lord. 
In fact, you're to serve that spouse and give a good witness to that person so that you can win them to the Lord. But if there's something that is standing in your way, in your walk between you and Jesus Christ, some sin, some pursuit, to get rid of it. Do not eat it raw nor boiled at all with water, but roasted in fire its head, its legs, and its entrails. Very specific, is it not? You shall let none of it remain until morning, and what remains of it in the morning you shall burn with fire. Thus you shall eat it with a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. You shall eat it in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. So you get the idea that the Passover was something that, you know, they. it was, yes, leisurely. It is that way today. But in those days, they had to, you know, keep their uh, clothes tucked into their belt. They were ready to run in case God would pass over with the death angel. They were ready to go through the wilderness. Now let's go to 13 and we'll stop. Oh, I'd love to go on more. Well, I will pass through the land of Egypt on that night. I will strike all the firstborn of the land of Egypt, both man and beast, against all the gods of Egypt. I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and the plague shall not be on you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. They were not saved because they were Jewish. They were not saved just because they were children of Abraham. They were saved because they did, they acted upon what they said they believed. They had to kill that lamb and put the blood on the lentils and doorposts. And if it wasn't on the house, sorry, death came to that house. If there was blood on that house, the angel would skip it. The blood needed to be applied. In fact, even if they did slaughter the lamb, it was useless unless they applied the blood. When I see the blood, they had to act. Jesus said that the way to eternal life was narrow. And there are few who find it. You know, what Jesus said, we should all come to, come to grips with. It's true. It's narrow. People accuse you of being narrow-minded. They're right. There is one way. That is why Christians should be faithful, whether you're persecuted, liked or not, to be ambassadors for Christ. When I see the blood, is the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life tonight? There's only one hope. People say, oh, I've heard this spiel before, buddy. Well, it's just too narrow for me. Well, you know what? It's just too bad. I didn't make the rules up. And I'm not going to try to change them or water it down with some other gospel. It is a narrow way. There's only one way. Jesus even himself said that. And for you to deny that, you'd call him a liar. When I see the blood, God said, I'll pass over. Now, how do you apply the blood to your life? Jesus said, whoever believes in me is not condemned. But whoever does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed on the only Son of God. He's the Lamb. But is he your lamb? Have you applied the blood to your life? Have you come like Pharaoh and said, Oh, please pray for me. Forgive me, God. And then gone out and lived like nothing ever happened? Or have you come into contact with God if you have and you've looked at the cross and you've said, Okay, I'm going to make a decision. I'm going to repent. I'm going to turn from the old and I'm going to follow Jesus Christ. Then you'll find the grace and mercy of God washes over your soul, floods into your life, and blessed are those who mourn. God will see the blood. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. God does not arbitrarily forgive. He forgives when he sees the blood. Let's pray. (coughs) Father, our Lord Jesus is so aptly portrayed in the fact that you, before you judged, were very gracious, very merciful, very long-suffering with Pharaoh and with the Egyptians. You kept telling them and kept telling them through Moses and Aaron. People saw your wonders displayed and they hardened their hearts. And we are not saved tonight because we're of a certain culture or group, but only because you see the blood of Jesus Christ, the Lamb slain before the foundations of the earth, applied to our lives. And how grateful tonight we are, Lord, that our Passover Lamb has been sacrificed And there is protection for our lives. And when judgment comes, you will pass over us and bring us into your courts. It's a great promise, Lord. It brings such joy. Father, as we conclude this service, we pray that your Spirit would search now the congregation. For there may be some of different backgrounds who have never committed their lives personally, in repentance, by making a decision and applying the blood to their lives. We pray, Father, that you would just comb every aisle and touch hearts, bringing now that conviction of your love and the conviction of sin that those who are here who want a personal relationship with you, who aren't sure of their stand with you, but they want to be forgiven, would make a decision tonight, and as they go home, even in this cold weather, their hearts would be warm. 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 